Welcome back to the Nursing Crash Cards. My name is Cameron, and you're listening to episode number six. If this is your first episode, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to invite you to check out the previous episode, as I do talk about some concepts that I've discussed uh, before. At the end of this episode, I'll give you all the information that you will need to subscribe to the podcast, where you can find me on the web, and how you can contact me. So this is the second episode in the Chief Complaint series. We're going to talk about headache today. Headache, similar to chest pain, is a chief complaint you will likely see multiple times a day. More often than not, these headaches are completely benign and require just a couple medications that we'll talk about later in the episode, then out the door this patient goes. But this is the emergency department, and as I mentioned, our job isn't always to diagnose everything, but we like to rule out that bad stuff. So that's what we're going to kind of talk about today, what's the bad stuff. The absolute biggest concern in the ED right now when it comes to worst case scenarios for headaches are subarachnoid hemorrhages. So we will definitely be spending some time talking about subarachnoid bleeds today, but we also have plenty of other problems that can show up on our radar. So we'll touch on those in a bit, but for now, let's start at the beginning with our our nursing process and begin with our focused ED assessment. So what do you notice about the patient when you enter the room? Is this room dark and they have a washcloth uh, over their eyes and they have an emesis bag or a basin in arm's reach that they've been puking their guts out into? If you're the one triaging the patient, did they walk uh, from the lobby to your triage room? If so, did they do it with a steady gait or are they kind of stumbling all over the place? Did they have to get pushed in a wheelchair? What's the sound like in the room? Is the television on or is there a family member sitting at the bedside with uh, an iPad showing the patient the you know the latest viral YouTube video involving a cat. Are the most recent set of vitals up on the monitor in the room? If so, what's the patient's blood pressure? So just walking in the room, before you even talk to the patient, you can kind of get uh, a little bit of a decent overview about what you can probably expect during the rest of your assessment. Uh, just from kind of picking up on these little subtle cues. Now, I'm a pretty boisterous person in general, and I'm kind of a loud person, so I like to try to make an effort to tone things down a bit when I step into the room of someone who's complaining about a headache uh, until I know a little bit more about what's going on. So a softer tone until you can tease out some of the OPQRST. I talked a little bit about that acronym in the chest pain episode, but we'll go over it uh, quickly today so you don't have to pause here and go back and listen to another episode just to follow along with this one. OPQRST is an acronym that we use for any pain assessment, be it chest pain, headache, abdominal pain, toe pain, whatever you want. Once you have a good grasp of the OPQRST, I want you to kind of combine it with your neuro assessment while you're asking the patient to perform parts of your neurologic exam, I want you to kind of tease out that OPQRST pain bit 
Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about why in just a little bit. So O is for onset. We want to know when this started, as well as what they were doing when this started. Were they just sitting on their couch? Were they on hour 14 of a Harry Potter book marathon? Were they lifting up a side of a couch looking for loose change? Or did they get their head slammed onto the top of a police cruiser and then develop a bad allergic reaction to handcuffs, forcing them to make a pit stop into the emergency department? We want to know these things so we can kind of start to get an idea what might be the cause. Uh, P is your provoking and palliative factors. It's the what makes this pain better or worse. Migraines tend to cause a state of heightened senses. So these people are going to be like, oh my god, everything makes it worse. So we want to know if someone is sensitive to light or sounds uh, pretty quick, and we can do it during this time. The terms we like to use for these are photophobia and phonophobia. Obviously, photophobia for light and phonophobia for sound. So if somebody says, no, I don't really have any sensitivity to the sound, well, then obviously I can drop the whole, hey, I'm a shy, gentle person, and I talk quietly routine, and just be myself. Uh, you also want to know what medications they took beforehand, and if so, uh, you know when they took them, what they took, like how much, and did it actually help with their pain? Q is for quality. This is the describe your pain to me question. I like to give a short laundry list of adjectives if they don't immediately jump out with something. So I'll say, would you say this pain is sharp, dull, achy, crampy, burning, stabbing, throbbing, tightness, or pressure? Uh, they can normally give you some ad adjective along the way that's going to, uh, you know, kind of give you a better des uh, descriptor for what their pain feels like. R is for region and radiation. Now you have to kind of be a little bit careful with this one. You want to try uh, not to lead the patient too much. Uh, because as you will find out, when you ask a patient if they are having a symptom, specifically a, a very specific symptom, They'll think back through their catalog of miserable feelings since this started, and they'll try to relate it to something that has happened, which invariably means that the answer will be yes. If you ask nothing but yes-no questions, you're going to be worried that every single person with a headache is a bleed or a tumor. And as Arnold says, it's not a tumor. I promise you, they are not all bleeds and tumors. So what does this mean in the context of asking about the region and radiation? Try and keep it simple and try and keep it vague. Let the patient tell you what they're feeling um, more than you try to ask us about specific things. So, you know, where do you feel the pain in your head? And then does that pain go anywhere else? You know, you want to know if it's like a, a band-like pain around the head, if it's unilateral, meaning just on one side of the head. You know, if it's just around the temples, if it's behind the eyes, the front, the back, etc. We we want to know these things, but we don't want to ask them specifically. So just you know, ask them to kind of point where their headache feels the worst, um, and then uh, ask them if it goes anywhere else. Um, we we definitely want to know if the pain goes to the neck, but that's the one we specifically don't want to ask about directly. Uh, you know, the physician may ask this if they have a larger concern for things like meningitis or encephalitis, but we as the nurses, uh, we can still get a thorough and accurate assessment without pigeonholing the physicians when it comes to testing. If 
uh, you know, this, this goes to court or something, which unfortunately is kind of the world we live in where everything is defensive medicine and defensive charting. You don't want them to say, well, you know, the nurse here says that this patient, uh, had stiff, you know, had a stiff neck and they were complaining about severe neck pain, but you didn't do a lumbar puncture on this patient. Why not? And then they have to, uh, you know, explain what about their assessment made them think that they, this patient didn't need it. So if the patient doesn't specifically mention it, you know, don't, you don't necessarily need to ask about it specifically. You know, let the patient come to you. If, if, if the neck is something that's bothering them, when you ask them, where else is this pain going? I'm sure they'll get there with it if, if they have a, a neck that's bothering them. Uh, so then moving on, S is for severity. And that's our wonderful zero to 10 scale. Zero, no pain. 10 is the worst possible pain. Where would you rate your pain? So whenever someone says, says it is a 10, I try to clarify it a little bit more. So have you had pain worse than this before? Well, yeah, I delivered my baby. It was way worse than this. Okay, so let's put that at a 10. How would you rate this in comparison? Invariably, the follow-up answer is something like, well, this is a 9.5 then. But I want to put forth the effort to kind of get people thinking about the scale beyond, this hurts, I'll say it's a 10, so they think I'm serious. I'm not saying these folks aren't having 10 out of 10 pain. I just want them to try and think about it a little bit. The other portion of the severity question that I want to know is when uh, when it comes to headaches, is did the pain get worse gradually or was it the worst when it started or close to when it started? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But for now, it's an important question to ask during the severity portion. Uh, and then lastly is T for time. How long has this been going on? The two questions I really want to know during this portion of the pain assessment are, are you someone who normally gets headaches? Because if the person tells me, you know, no, I, I never get headaches, you know, it makes for a little bit of a different story than, yeah, about twice a month I get bad headaches, I see my neurologist for them, she put me on a new medication, but it doesn't seem to work. I called her office, she told me to come to the ER if I can't control them at home. You know, the second question we want to know about headache history is we want to know if this is the worst headache of their life. However, just like before, this isn't something we want to really come out and ask directly. If you say it's the worst headache of their life, you know, patients aren't always truthful or honest when it comes to their symptoms and when it comes to severity of things. There's a bit of a preconceived notion that if I don't, as the patient, tell them that this is really serious by making it sound like it's really serious, that I'm not ever going to get to feel better. And this does hurt, and I want to feel better. So instead of asking directly, is this the worst headache of your life? I like to ask, how would you compare this headache to ones you've had before? So this gives room for the patient to say it without leading the witness. Uh, you know, they can say, well, you know, this is about the same as my other headaches before, but it's, man, it's just lasting so much longer and I can't get rid of it. Or, oh, I've had worse headaches, but, um, you know, this one is just, uh, you know, it was affecting me at work today and I couldn't get things done and my boss sent me here. Or they may say, you know what, this is honestly worse than any other headache I've had. And that's going to lead us for a little bit more room for concern. So just like with chest pain, we also want to know about additional symptoms beyond the pain, as well as history related to the chief complaint. 
the large symptoms we want to know about are nausea and vomiting, vision changes like blurred or double vision, auras, and any big neurologic changes like difficulty with speech, uh, numbness and tingling, weakness, especially if the weakness is unilateral, again, just one side of the body. One thing we are not going to talk about today, but should be part of your assessment, is uh, stroke. It's a topic that needs a good amount of time to talk about, so covering it now would just be information overload. It's also the reason we want to do our neuro assessment with the pain assessment as you get better with them. Because just like with chest pain and the concern for heart attack, strokes, or, or brain attacks as they are calling them now, are also time sensitive. The saying time is muscle for the heart transfers easily to time is brain for strokes. On patients where you have a high level of concern or suspicion for a stroke, you may skip everything and just get right to a quick neurological assessment um, so that you can activate any required protocols to get additional staff, uh, stroke alerts, whatever you have at your facility. But again, that's going to be for another episode because it is a, a large and time-consuming concept and, um, and topic in and of itself. So after that pain assessment, we want to get a quick but thorough neurologic exam. You've already done some of it. Uh, if you were triaging this patient, you saw their gait, and you've also been listening to their speech. Is this patient alert and oriented? Is their speech clear? Or is it slurred or mumbling? Were they ataxic when they were walking? Ataxia is a, a lack of coordinated movements, and when they walk, they will have a, a, a wide stance normally and frequently appear like they're walking while extremely drunk or almost having an upper body seizure while they're trying to walk. I recall in nursing school, one of the uh, the girls in the class came up with a pretty easy way to remember ataxia. Her saying was, if you're drunk, you better call ataxi. So ataxia drunk. I'm a big head-to-toe person for my neuroassessment. Some folks like to kind of jump around. Some folks do toe-to-head. So find something that works for you and try to do it the same way each time so it kind of gets drilled into your memory and you don't forget something uh, during your neuro uh, assessment. So starting with the face, I look for muscular symmetry before I start blinding somebody with my pen light. Symmetry is the big key here, especially with anything neuro. And anything not symmetrical needs to be documented and you want to talk to the, uh, the patient and the physician about it. We talk to the patient about it because we want to know things like, did they have a stroke in the past? Uh, and do they have leftover deficits from that stroke? Uh, did they get into a motor vehicle crash last week and that shoulder is sore, which was affecting their upper body strength on that one side? So that you can see these are important things to know during your assessment. So, so, you know, show me a big smile where I can see your teeth. This forces people to have a really big smile where you can see obvious signs of drooping on one side of the face. You know, then uh, stick out your tongue, and you want to look for it to be midline. Now, I have while their tongue's out, I want them to move it side to side. Now, put your tongue back in your mouth and puff out your cheeks. Sometimes uh, you may have to do this with the patients so they know what you're talking about. Then I'll have them raise their eyebrows up like they're surprised and then close their eyes tight and don't let me open them. At this point, I'll use the, the pads on my thumbs, kind of like putting my, my hands on the side of their heads and just gently try and force open the eyes. Uh, then you want to know about sensation while your hands are right there on the face. 
So just gently move your thumbs up from the eyes to their forehead. Um, you know, ask them if it feels the same on both sides of their forehead. And then touch both cheeks and ask the exact same thing. So does it, you know, same or does it, um, does it feel the same on both sides or does it feel, you know, you can feel it more sensation on one side versus the other? Then you want to ask about any numbness or tingling in the face. So then we'll check that pupil response and eye movement. The acronym for a normal eye exam is PERLA. You might be familiar with that term. It's P-E-R-R-L-A, which stands for Pupils Equal, Round, Reactive to Light, and Accommodation. So what does that mean? Equal, of course, the same size. Now, there's actually a significant portion of the population where pupils are measurably different even by the naked eye. This means you don't need to freak out or get so specific during the exam, you know, along the lines of, you know, well, you know, the right eye was 2.7 millimeters and the left one was 3 millimeters. You know, we're looking for big differences when we do this. Is one wide open or, or blown, as we call it, or is it pinpoint, which is just like it sounds, while the other is of normal size based on the ambient light in the room. And then around. Are they circular, or are they oval, are they cat's eye, or are they just generally misshapen? And you also may want to ask about any eye history while you're there. Do they have a history of cataracts or glaucoma or anything else? Uh, reactive to light. So if the room is already bright and you shine a light in a person's eyes, you may not see much of a response. So you may want to either darken the room uh, a little bit before you do this exam, or shield their eyes like a like a visor on a ball cap with one hand to allow their pupils to relax and enlarge a little bit first. So you'll want to see both eyes constrict equally even though you shine the light in one eye at a time. Give the eyes a few seconds to relax when you swap the light from one eye to the next. Uh, and then the last thing we want to talk about is the accommodation. So this means uh, the ability to focus on something that's near as well as far. I do this um, as the precursor to my extraocular movement exam by just putting my finger about 10 inches away from their face or so. And then I say, you know, hey, focus on my finger. And I want to look at their eyes. And I say, then focus on the wall behind me. The pupil should constrict on the near objects. And then when the eyes focus on the wall behind me, you should see them dilate a little bit. So then next, your finger's already there. So go ahead and you're going to track extraocular movements by having them Keep their head still, but track your finger as you move it into all their outer fields of vision. Not only do you want to make sure that the eyes track the finger, but you want to look at the eyes and make sure they're moving together, um, as well as both focusing on your finger. One other assessment portion to accomplish while focusing on their head is you can also check for neck movement. So this is one of those, oh, you know, like they said their, their neck hurt, or you had suspicion for their neck hurting. Um, so we're going to kind of rule that out a little bit or kind of see just how bad while we're, while we're here. So have the patient, you know, look over their left shoulder, then look over their right shoulder, then look straight ahead again, uh, then put their chin all the way to their chest, and then have them look at the ceiling. You want to ask them if any of this is painful. Now, as I warned you before, when you ask that specific yes-no question, chances are they're going to say yes. So you want to kind of watch their face when they're doing these neck movements. If they say, yeah, you know, it, it felt a little sore when I put my chin to my chest. You know, it's different than if they can't move it one particular direction or if they, you know, grimace or yelp in pain as they move. 
Uh, you know, in the first example is the neck pain just because they've been sitting in an uncomfortable ED bed for a bit, craning their neck to watch TV. You know, for these situations, I find that it's appropriate to, uh, you know, quote the patient in my assessment along with any objective findings. So, for example, the patient who is able to move his neck in all directions, no grimace with face movement, but patient states, quote, it felt a little sore as I put my chin to my chest, unquote. Uh, you know, this way you, you've documented the absolute objective and subjective truth without pigeonholing that patient into getting the lumbar puncture. So this is, this is not to say that we're not going to spinal tap the crap out of people that, uh, diagnostically need it. We also don't want to shove a needle into the back of every single person into, uh, with a headache either. So the next step in our neuroassessment is the upper body. So moving right there from the neck, we'll check their shoulder shrugs by putting the palms of our hands on their shoulders, press down slightly, and have the patient shrug. Uh, again, we're looking for symmetry and muscle strength. And the next, we'll check the patient's grip strength. I uh, give them my index and middle fingers, like they're kind of milking a cow udder, and have them squeeze my fingers on both sides. Some people like to cross their arms when they give the patient their fingers, so if they feel any asymmetry, they know whatever hand felt weaker to them is the same side that the patient's weak on, but I don't particularly have an issue figuring that one out, so I don't personally bother with it. Uh, while you have the patient's hands in yours, have them pull you towards them and kind of brace yourself as you do. Some people like to show off and toss you around a little bit while doing this part. And then have them push you away, again bracing yourself. While you still have their hands, uh, kind of move their arms into a position to check pronator drift. I always tell my patients, pretend like they are holding a pizza box out in front of them, and I straighten out their arms and make sure their palms are facing up. The important part of this test is to tell the patients to close their eyes. Um, so I'm going to let them remove my hands from theirs, have them close their eyes, um, and then I'm going to have them count to ten. So if, if you let them keep their eyes open, it makes it much easier for them to compensate for any deficit they may have. So now with their eyes closed, like, like I said, have them keep their arms in place and count to 10. If one arm drops, lowers and goes to the side, that's a failed test. This isn't something that typically takes all 10 seconds before it's failed. Normally the moment you let go and they start counting, you'll know it's failed or not. But go ahead and do the full 10 seconds uh, just to be sure. Well, so next you're going to check sensation by touching both the forearms, and then ask if it feels the same, as well as both hands and both upper arms, and ask about any numbness or tingling in the upper body. Kind of moving down a little bit from the upper body, from the trunk down into the pelvis and lower legs, we're going to ask about any incontinence or numbness in the genital area and buttocks. If the headache was due to trauma, like a fall, uh, numbness specifically in these areas can be due to a very serious neurocondition called cauda equina syndrome, which can be like an entrapment or compression of a nerve bundle in the lumbar and sacral area that can require uh, emergency surgery to correct. So we want to kind of ask about that while we're there. Uh, then lastly, we'll look at the lower body. So I just go ahead and move to the foot of the bed at this point, both because uh, you can complete the exam from here, and it also makes for a quick getaway, so you can move on to see your other patients. So we'll check for dorsiflexion and plantar flexion of the feet. Plantar is then pushing down. Easy to remember as the bottom of the foot is the plantar surface, and the top of the foot is the dorsal surface. So when they pull their toes back up, 
and um, you know pull their feet back up towards them. That's your dorsal flexion. Uh, put your hands kind of against their feet and have them pushed down against the resistance. With anybody old enough to drive, I just always say it's like you're pushing down on the gas pedals with both feet. Uh, then for dorsiflexion, move your hands around to the dorsal side of the feet and say, now move your toes towards your nose and give them some resistance to pull their feet again so you can check that, that symmetry. Uh, next, I have them raise one leg off the bed at a time while you push down on their shin. This one's going to be a little bit more difficult for patients to do both legs at once. So if you aren't sure if it feels symmetrical, don't hesitate to go back and forth a few times to double check. And then check for sensation in their lower legs, asking if it's equal. In our ever-increasing diabetic population, uh, neuropathy may prevent them from feeling this at all. So if they tell you they don't feel you from touching, you want to ask if this is new or if this is typical for them. The last bit of our neuro exam is the heel-shin test. Um, have the patient place the heel out from like their left foot onto their right outstretched leg, just below the knee, and you're going to have them run it up and down the shin, going from knee to foot and back. And then have them switch legs and do the exact same thing with the other side. If they slide off just a, a little bit, this doesn't necessarily make it a failed test. Um, so just kind of watch. Is this something they can they can complete, but maybe they're just a little bit uncoordinated with it, or is this something that you put the heel on their shin and it just falls and never makes it down at all? So that's kind of the, the neuro exam in a nutshell. And while me talking through it sounds pretty long, it just takes a couple of minutes at the bedside. Uh, luckily, if you're required to be certified in the NIH stroke scale, we've covered the vast majority of that scale with our exam. So on those patients where you are concerned for stroke, you've got a great portion of the information required simply by doing this neuro exam. So we have our OPQRST pain assessment with associated symptoms and their past uh, medical history related to uh, neuro. We have our patient uh, assessment, the neuro assessment, and now we need to kind of figure out how, how all this data uh, fits into possible patient diagnoses and then how we're going to treat those patients. So as I mentioned in the beginning, one of the biggest concerns we have with headaches are the subarachnoid bleeds. The subarachnoid space is the, it's the area of the brain where the cerebrospinal fluid, the CSF, and the vascular system, they kind of meet up. And bleeding in this area uh, is frequently from a ruptured aneurysm, often in the area of the circle of Willis. Um, so our, our three big pieces of information that, that give us concern for a subarachnoid hemorrhage are worst headache of life, rapid onset, and worst pain at the start of the headache. The textbook uh, description of this is a thunderclap headache, which is to say that it came on like a thunderclap in their head, that very rapid onset and that worst pain right at the beginning. The other piece of information that can be related to a ruptured aneurysm is a syncopal episode or a near syncopal episode when the headache starts. Uh, part of my time during uh, the critical care fellowship when I when I got out of nursing school, I got to spend in a, in a neuro ICU. So I got to see a lot of subarachnoid bleeds after they left the ED. So with any bleed, an increase in intracranial pressure is a large concern for nursing. The easiest thing to remember at the bedside is that the most sensitive and earliest indicator of increased ICP is a decreased level of consciousness. 
If you have a patient with a chief complaint that's a headache, who's awake one minute and difficult to arouse the next, an increase in ICP should always be your first assumption, and you need to get a physician at the bedside right away. Uh, so while they're on their way, there are two things that we can do to help relieve ICP. First is you're going to get a drill, and okay, I'm just kidding. We're not really going to drill in their head. That's going to be up to like the neurosurgeons or your emergency physicians if they feel comfortable with it. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get the head of the bed upright as high as we can and keep the patient laying back against the bed still. Uh, you don't want them to slump forward by going completely upright. The second thing we can do is either C-collar the neck or use blankets like a blanket roll or even your own hands to keep the head propped upright. Uh, by not pinching off the jugular veins, we can decrease, I'm sorry, we can increase the amount of drainage coming from the brain, thus decreasing ICP. So head of the bed upright as much as we can, at least, you know, 30, 45 degrees or higher. And then we want to um, get the head kind of in a good upright neutral position to allow for better drainage from the head. Uh, the most important treatment for these patients uh, involve getting neurosurgeon involved and then interventional neurology if it's an aneurysm. Typically, these are, are going to be the folks that are going to get a, a 3D CT angiography scan of the brain. Uh, these are amazing scans to, to look at, and it was always uh, just fascinating to, to uh, you know, pull them up on your patients when I was in the neuro ICU. So I suggest the next time you're at a computer and you got a moment to spare, do a Google image search for 3D CT angiography of brain vessels, and then just be mesmerized by the results. These are gorgeous looking scans of the blood vessels of the brain and you can easily see things like aneurysms with them. Uh, so this scan uh, may still be done while the patient's in the ED and then they may head off to surgery or to something like a neuro ICU and we'll probably do another podcast uh, specifically on subarachnoid management because there's a lot that you can talk about it uh, but, but typically this is going to be done well outside the realm of the emergency department. So how do we diagnose that it's a subarachnoid bleed? So first we do a CAT scan without contrast of the brain. It's the exact same scan we do for stroke screening because we're initially just looking for the exact same thing, bleeding on the brain. So the CT comes back negative and then we're done, right? Well, unfortunately not. The safest routine at the moment is to... Uh, and it also has the highest level of sensitivity on these patients is then the, the lumbar puncture after the CAT scan. So the lumbar puncture is looking for two different things, red blood cells and xanthochromia. If you've never seen a lumbar puncture, the spinal needle is inserted between the lumbar vertebrae into what's called the intrathecal space, which is the, the area kind of outside of the spinal cord that contains all the CSF, and it kind of bathes the spinal column. So this is also the, the same CSF that's in the subarachnoid space. So if there's a bleed there, it's going to mix around in the CSF, and we're going to be able to detect it with the results from the lumbar puncture. So um, if you know a needle is being shoved through the skin, sometimes it can be you know difficult for the uh, physicians to kind of find that sweet spot, uh, because of anatomical variations like scoliosis, or patients may be um, a bit more generously sized and they have difficult to locate landmarks. Um, so sometimes you're going to have what's called a traumatic tap. 
There are four tubes that uh, we normally collect with a lumbar puncture. Each of them are going to get like one to two milliliters worth of CSF, and the tube should be numbered one through four and collected in that order. So the reason is, if you have that traumatic tap, um, and then the results show, you know, a couple red blood cells in tube one, and then it tapers off, um, that's what you almost expect to see with a traumatic tap. Um, because, you know, it took a little bit while, you may have kind of collected some blood along the way, and then you, you have it inside your, uh, catheter, uh, with the, the spinal needle, and by the time you get to the CSF, some of that blood's gonna drip into your first couple tubes as it kind of gets cleared out. Um, so, when we're seeing a taper off, that's, you know, that's kind of a good sign. Um, some physicians will even let the CSF drip for a few moments before they start collecting to hopefully avoid, you know, skewed results from a traumatic tap. So the other thing I mentioned besides the red blood cells is xanthochromia. Oddly enough, this is uh, easy to remember if you know any Greek. I don't, except for the word xanthochromia, which is yellow color. So this doesn't really show until about 12 hours or so after a bleed has started, as the yellowing is the breakdown of red blood cells. So they release heme as the red blood cells are destroyed, which then gets converted to bilirubin, the exact same thing that causes a yellowing of the skin when someone's jaundiced. So to quickly recap, subarachnoid hemorrhage is the thunderclap headache, worst headache of life, possibly with syncopal or near syncopal episode, and it's diagnosed with a head CT without contrast, followed by a lumbar, lumbar puncture if the CT is negative. Uh, we support decreasing the ICP in these patients uh, with the head of the bed upright in the neutral head position, and we want to get them off to neuro and neurosurge as quick as possible. So the other diagnosis that's going to require a lumbar puncture is those are your meningitis patients. Uh, so these headache patients are the ones that typically are going to have that stiff neck. They're typically going to have a fever, either documented um, in the ED or they're going to say they had a fever at home, and they frequently just look pretty darn sick. So when you're concerned for meningitis, you also need to think about isolation precautions. I've seen some folks flip out. I think these people need to be in, in negative airflow rooms. Everyone has to wear the N95 masks or the hoods, but this is not the case. Meningitis is droplet precautions, not respiratory or airway precautions. Um, so you want to check with your own facilities policy, but for us, that means that we wear just a regular surgical mask when we're interacting with the patient, and if the patient is traveling to a procedure, they wear a surgical mask. So there's two types of meningitis, viral and bacterial. Viral is the preferred type of the two to have, as you may feel like garbage, but your body is typically going to fight it off just fine on its own. Uh, bacterial, on the other hand, can be deadly. So we want to treat patients with concerning symptoms, like it could be bacterial meningitis until we know otherwise. Uh, vancomycin and rocephin, or ceftriaxone, it's the same thing for uh, rocephin, those tend to be the two antibiotics we will use or start in the ED. So these patients, because of their symptoms, uh, frequently fall into the, the SIRS criteria that we talked about in the sepsis episode. So chances are they've already got blood culture sent off and two great IVs so we can get antibiotics going quickly. Uh, another important catch 
in the uh, emergency department is temporal arteritis. And there's a few good clues that you can use to uh, tip you off on these patients. So this is an inflammatory disease, and the end result is that it can lead to permanent blindness. So that's why it's kind of an important one to catch um, if you see it. I think I've seen this one time. Um, it's a pretty rare one to doc or to to uh, have uh, diagnosed, um, but it, because it has such uh, severe um, repercussions by letting it go, it's important to know. I've already kind of hinted at, um, you know, what a possible treatment could be because I said this was because of inflammation. So one of the big things we use for treating inflammation are steroids. These people are going to get around like a milligram per kilogram per day of prednisone. And they sometimes receive steroid treatment for up to like nine months to a year. Uh, and they'll kind of taper the, uh, the dose as they go. So what are we looking for with our assessment? So you're going to find that the vast majority of your headache patients just in general are younger patients, kind of the under 40 crowd. Uh, what you might think about with a, a temporal arteritis patient is think of someone who might be a little bit older, first of all. When I see someone who's in their 50s or higher um, and their chief complaint is a headache, I tend to be a little bit more concerned, a little bit more on guard with those patients. Uh, next, the pain will be located as you can probably assume by the name of the disease, around the temples. So mostly this will be on one side only, but it can be on both sides. The other bit that will make this stand out is that touching the area will cause an increase in the pain. With a lot of benign headaches putting pressure on their head, uh, like above or behind the eyes or on the temples, almost like relieves a portion of the pain. It makes them feel better. With temporal arteritis, you're likely going to get punched in the face by grandma if you push on her temples. Um, additional blood tests are ordered on patients where this might be a concern. So you're going to check with your hospital or your facility, just like with anything else. But the two tests that we tend to order when there's concern for this are your C-reactive protein, your, your CRP, and your ESR, or your erythrocyte sedimentation rate. So both of these are used to measure acute inflammation. If they come back elevated, you want to push your physician to get those steroids ordered because again, you know, with the with the concern for permanent blindness, we want to start treatment as soon as possible. So the the definitive absolute end goal diagnoses for these patients, um, the kind of the gold standard is they're going to have a biopsy of their temporal artery to confirm this diagnosis. So again, quickly uh, the recaps. Um, we'll head back to meningitis. I don't think I talked about that one as a quick recap. These are going to be your other patients that require a lumbar puncture. They're going to be the headache with the stiff neck, the fever. They're going to look sick as crap. Um, frequently, they're going to meet SIRS criteria. It's droplet precautions, so just surgical masks. But again, check with your own facility what you guys like to use. Um, and we want to get antibiotics going pretty quick on these guys, too, if there's concern for bacterial meningitis. So that's Vank and Rosefin that tend to be the use that people, uh, the, the two that people will use in the ED. The temporal arteritis catch, that's the in, uh, inflammatory disease where it can end in blindness. It's going to be typically an older person, sometimes just on one side, but it can be on both sides. And it's going to be uh, very, very painful for you to touch their temples. Your treatment is your 
high-dose steroids for a long, long time, and it's definitively diagnosed with the biopsy of the artery. All right, so next up are going to be our other bleeds beyond the subarachnoids. So firstly, we'll talk about epidural bleeds. These are usually from arteries, and they're usually from trauma, with the sides of the head normally being the, the biggest offenders when it comes to the traumas. These patients will normally be lucid immediately after the trauma, talking after the event just fine, and as the arterial blood pushes against the brain, increasing ICP, uh, what do you suspect is going to happen? So remember that most sensitive and earliest indicator of increased ICP is that decreased level of consciousness. So these people are going to be lucid, and then they're going to decompensate. So, you know, the danger of these patients is that they look and feel fine at first, but they can rapidly decompensate as that blood builds up. You know, so if the medics show up at an accident scene, the person's up talking on their cell phone with their insurance company, walking around like after they, you know, got T-boned on the driver's side, they, you know, they may uh, refuse transport or the medics may feel this person you know, is okay after their evaluation. At least in our area, I know the medics are pretty persuasive after any injury where someone struck their head, even if they didn't lose conscious, uh, consciousness at the time. So to diagnose these patients, we're going to get a CT of the head, again, without contrast, and that's going to be that, that bread and butter diagnosis for these patients uh, to detect the bleed. The kind of neat thing and the easy way to kind of remember your different bleeds um, is that these bleeds are going to look kind of like a, a, what's the word, a biconvex lens. So it's going to be bulged out on both sides, almost like an oval that's pointed on both ends. Um, so we're going to monitor these patients for that decreased LOC. And these patients are often going to be uh, repeat head CTs and then possible surgical interventions are going to be required, like that burr hole in the skull to relieve pressure and allow the bleed to drain. The other big type of head bleed that we see are your subdural bleeds. So these are often your venous bleeds, not your arterial, and they tend to be classified as acute or chronic. Acute subdural bleeds are some of the most lethal hemorrhages. These can also appear with trauma, just like your epidural bleeds. Um, they're often the result of coup contra coup injuries. Uh, so this is a fancy way of saying that, that your, your coup injuries are the direct impact like the head hits the steering wheel when the patient runs their car into a tree. When the brain, the brain smacks into the front of the skull, that's the coup injury. The force of the brain then ricocheting backwards into the back of the skull, that's the indirect imagery, uh, injury or the contra-coup injury. Shaken baby syndrome is the classic coup-contra-coup injury where you'll typically find a subdural hematoma. So kind of picture like a bowl of jello that's just been chilled in the refrigerator. As you shake it, the outer membrane of that jello kind of breaks free from the bowl, and that's the shearing force that can pull and tear away at the veins uh, that's going to cause these subdural bleeds. We'll also typically see it in two other patient populations besides shaken baby. Uh, first, the elderly, and then second, the chronic alcohol abusers. So the elderly population has a brain that has atrophied over time, meaning that there's more room for that brain to slosh around and smack against the walls of the skull, increasing those shearing forces of the blood vessels. The other thing that elderly tend to have 
not in their favor are blood thinners. Even if it's just a daily aspirin or your typical Coumadin, Plavix, Pradaxa, Xarelto, whatever patients or whatever blood thinners these patients are on, you know, they're often going to be on something that's going to allow that bleed to keep going. Uh, with alcoholics, there's also brain atrophy as well as uh, typically they have uh, thrombocytopenia, which also puts these patients at risk for continued bleeding. Um, these patients will likely have had trauma days or even weeks ago, and because this is a slower venous bleed, um, and the two high-risk populations we're talking about have more room in their skull due to the atrophy, they may not have symptoms for some time after an injury. Um, and even if they did have an injury, or even if they had an injury at all, sometimes these can have spontaneous bleeds with um, just minor movements, minor trauma. Um, headaches, confusion, and that ataxic gait we talked about earlier are some of the most common findings for subdural bleeds when symptoms even present. Uh, these patients are also going to get that head CT without contrast, um, but instead of their bleed looking like that biconvex lens, like the um, like the epidural bleeds, these ones are going to look more like a, a crescent moon. So for acute bleeds, uh, surgical decompression is also the definitive solution. So same thing, it could be that, that burr hole, or they can go um, into surgery and do like a craniectomy to just remove part of the skull to you know, help relieve that pressure, decrease their ICP, and evacuate some of that blood. One quick, easy way you can kind of remember the difference between your epidural and your subdural bleeds is the acronym EAT-SAVE. EAT is your epidural arterial trauma. So your epidural bleeds are typically arterial bleeds and typically from trauma. And then you have SAVE, S-A-V-E. So your subdurals are your alcoholics, and your anticoagulations, their venous bleeds, and you're also concerned in the elderly. So again, eat, save. Eat is your epidural arterial trauma, and then save is your subdural, your alcoholic anticoagulants, and venous, and elderly. So that's kind of a quick little way to remember which one is which and which are your, your big risk factors for it. So the other two things that we can catch on our CTs of the brain are masses and AVMs, or our arterial venous malformations. With everything neuro in our body, we like symmetry. And asymmetry on a CT of the brain is not a good thing. We're really not going to do much for these patients outside of trying to treat their headache pain but these folks are going to get referred to neurologists and likely a neurosurgeon as well for additional follow-ups like biopsies of masses and symptom control for AVM patients. So AVMs, those arterial venous malformations, are kind of like the equivalent of a large ball of tangled blood vessels. Kind of picture like your 12 lead wires anytime your patient comes back from x-ray. It's when the arteries in your veins decide to kick out the middleman and connect in a glob without those capillary beds. Um, AVMs can be the cause of new onset seizures. They can be those worst headaches of lives. They can get vertigo and a host of other neurological findings. Um, AVMs are 
congenital problems. These are problems that developed early on with the baby, um, you know, through birth. And these are going to be things that frequently aren't discovered until a patient's had a head CT, um, either because of those neurological symptoms or, you know, maybe there's concern for, um, you know, in injury or something in the past. Uh, with a, you know, a, a car accident or, a, you know, a, a, a football game where they, um, you know, bashed helmets really hard and guy got knocked out and maybe they did a head CT from that. Uh, you know, those are going to be typically when AVMs get diagnosed. Um, so if, if these get to the point where they can't be controlled symptomatically, sometimes the neurosurgeons will try to cut off blood supply to the AVMs, like with glue or wire coils, which are also what they will use to treat aneurysms, are those coiled wires. Um, you know, neither of which are going to be done at the bedside in the ED, so they're not frequently things we're going to need to to worry about and talk about in in this kind of a setting with the, with this podcast. Um, just know that you want to continue to look for symmetry, and that and that brain CT and asymmetry tends to be um, a very easily diagnosed cause of, of any neurological symptoms. The things you're going to look for are what's called a midline shift. Um, and that's when you'll, you'll see like there's a midline that runs down the middle of the brain. You can actually see on the CAT scan, it tends to be the middle divide between your two ventricles. It kind of gives your ventricles that mirrored uh, butterfly, almost like appearance. And if you see those get shift, squished, pushed, within the brain scan, and you see that midline um, of the brain get pushed off to one side, chances are whatever's causing that is the cause of whatever neurological symptoms are being treated that day. So those are kind of those bad things, but then, you know, like, like I said at the beginning, the vast majority of these headaches are pretty benign. Um, so those most common headache complaints that we're going to be dealing with are going to be your tension headaches, your migraines, and your cluster headaches. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care about these. Um, as anyone who's ever had a migraine can attest, they are absolutely no joke. And you can definitely, um, you, you tend to be able to spot the legitimate migraines as the people who just have bad headaches and think they have migraines. Um, but I kind of clump these, these three diagnoses together um, because in the emergency department, all three are treated very, very similarly. So these patients, while they may not require any like actual blood work, we're going to go ahead and draw labs when we start an IV just in case something changes while the patient's there. But we're going to use that IV either for fluids or for some medications. But to kind of quickly take one step back to help you differentiate between those three, the tension headaches are typically your, those are your band-like pains around the head that feel like pressure or the tightness, and sometimes they'll have a throbbing pain as well. Migraines, as I mentioned before, are hypersensitivities, and that means the photophobias, the phonophobias, the nausea and the vomiting. Typically, your migraines are female patients, and typically the pain is only on one side of the head, and they'll normally describe it as a throbbing pain. Alternatively, your cluster headaches are typically your males, and those are also unilateral, but normally they'll have like a sharp pain behind an eye. These patients may even come in thinking it's eye pain, like something happened to their eye, and you almost may be, you know, concerned about putting these people um, in, in like your eye rooms or something like that before you realize this is more headache pain than it is eye pain. 
So every physician has their own little cocktail that they like to use, whatever's worked for them in the past. We tend to see uh, a few different rounds of medications with the frontline medications either being Reglan or Compazine, and then uh, whichever one they use is going to be with Benadryl as well. Benadryl is especially important as a potential adverse effect of Reglan and Compazine can be akesthesia. Um, especially if these uh, these medications are not pushed very, very slowly. Um, at least with us, with our Reglan, sometimes there'll be a little note saying, you know, push over five to ten minutes. So this akesthesia is kind of this, uh, you know, jittery, crawling in your skin, claustrophobia, restless kind of sensation. I tell people it may kind of make them feel like they drank a few too many Red Bulls or something. Uh, the sedative properties of Benadryl, can help us counteract that sensation if they get those adverse effects. Um, but either way, we, we want that sedation because it's going to kind of help the brain just calm the heck down from its hypersensitive state. Uh, Reglan is nice because it's also a class B medication, so it's safer for pregnancy or if you're concerned about pregnancies. Um, so most of the female patients, if they didn't do a, um, a urine HCG up front, because remember every patient who is a female of childbearing age is considered pregnant until proven otherwise, um, they'll tend to order Reglan for those patients. Um, so, you know, depending, like I said, they may order fluids as well. And obviously you're not going to, you know, load up somebody with saline who is a, you know, a CHF patient. Uh, but sometimes just getting a little bit of extra fluid if they've been dehydrated or they've had nausea and vomiting can just kind of go a long way towards making them feel just a lot better in general. So the second line of medications that we tend to see, at least in our department, are the D medications. I don't mean Dilaudid. We'll tend to use Depakote and Decadron next. Uh, so with the Depakote as an infusion, typically, and not an IV push. Uh, and then the third line of defense tend to be uh, tends to be for us good old Haldol. Haldol is the rescue drug for migraine pain that tends to have the best results when nothing else seems to be working. Similar to Reglan and Compazine, akathisia or restlessness can be a side effect of the Haldol. Uh, and you also want to you know, kind of monitor your patient and perhaps get some additional Benadryl uh, with the administration of Haldol. The last medication that can be added to any of these rounds also has a little bit of a caveat with it. Tordol, an NSAID, can be very, very helpful in knocking out headaches on the patients that uh, you know, didn't take anything at home, and they're having your typical tension cluster of migraine headaches. However, if there is any concern about a bleed, about kidney function, or about pregnancy, we're not going to do Toradol. So kind of be on the lookout if Toradol gets ordered, and you have any suspicion about those things, again, a bleed, kidney function, or pregnancy, talk to them about either holding that or changing that medication. Uh, then lastly, there is going to be a portion of the patient population that's going to tell you up front that they have an allergic reaction to every single medication we typically use, and the only, the only thing that works for them is Dilaudid. Despite every ounce in your body wanting to call BS, kind of resist that urge and just let the doctors know. Uh, just because it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck doesn't always mean it's a duck when it comes to the emergency department. We get to see patients with drug-seeking behaviors. Nobody is questioning that at all. But there's also patients with chronic problems that know exactly what works for them. And we often 
label or treat these patients as seekers simply because they can tell us up front what's going to and what's not going to work for them. You know, the ED is, is definitely in kind of an identity crisis when it comes to treating chronic issues. So you want to make sure you're following your facility's guidelines when it comes to the, the chronic situations. Uh, but getting an attitude with these patients is going to put you in a crappy mood. It's going to put them in a crappy mood. And it's going to help nobody. So I found personally that the easiest thing that I can do is just document appropriately based on subjective and objective data. And if the physician is the type of person who will pull up narcotic records from whatever you guys use in your part of the, the country or the world or whatever, and then call out a patient that is a drug seeker, still be empathetic to the patient. You know, the best thing for them is definitely not continuing their addiction. And I agree with that 100%. But that also does not mean we need to treat these patients like they're subhuman. You know, maybe get social work involved, looking at getting them any resources they may want or need, if they have any interest at all in uh, looking at cessation of their addiction. Um, so, you know, you wanna, we want to still support the patient, even though, um, you know, we know they're not still here for the, the best of reasons. All right, so I think that's about it for today's episode. I want to thank you for listening. If you want to contact me with any questions or any concepts or ideas that you'd like to hear on future episodes of the show, or for any other reason at all, you can email me at edcrashcart at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at edcrashcart, and you can visit me on the web at edcrashcart.com. Uh, you can also check out other episodes of this podcast using iTunes and searching for the Nursing Crash Cart. And the podcast is now on Stitcher as well, so you can search for it there too. So for now, I'd like to you know, say goodbye to everybody. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>